0: My guest today is Linda Yu. She's an adjunct professor of economics at the London Business School, an associate fellow at Chatham House, and a TV and radio presenter for the BBC. She's here today to discuss her latest book, What Would the Great Economist Do? How Twelve Brilliant Minds Would Solve Today's Biggest Problems. Linda, welcome to the podcast.
1: It's great to be here, Jim. Well,
0: I just want to start out with something. Since we have listeners in the United States and beyond, the book has a Am I right? The book has a different title elsewhere.
1: Uh, yep. So uh, in Britain it's called The Great Economist, How Their Ideas Can Help Us Today. Great. Um, but and it's I, the same book. It just the same has book a, book a and a and and I
0: book. and I think a snappier cover, uh, the other edition. So I, I would I would prefer that cover as a nice cover.
1: Uh, oh well the paperback that's coming out uh, in the US in June um has that cover in know. So cover. I was
0: not I was not alone in that assessment. Oh, I, I it's
1: uh, spot on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: outstanding. So the, so I uh, I like the book very much. And frankly, uh, the book would have worked terrifically if it was just uh, a biography of the various economists without even taking an extra leap of trying to uh, apply their thinking today's problems. So it worked great like that. It works even better uh, as you sort of try to apply these ideas, the many, the many economic challenges uh, we face uh, today. I also want to start out with a question about just sort of the premise of the book, which is looking at what these, the great economists through history and what they would say about today's problems. This book comes out at a, at a time when it seems like we are rejecting expertise. We are sort of rejecting what, the, what great economists of the past uh, would have said. You see this sort of in the rise of populism when there's the idea of we've had enough of experts. And you have written a book about experts, How is the book being received, and do you think, did that at all drive your thinking about why to to write this book, that perhaps we really do need the experts and think what the great experts of the past had to say?
1: Mm. Yeah, it was exactly that thought. I thought we're facing so many big challenges, whether it's how do you increase wages, do we face a slow-growth future, what drives innovation? And it occurred to me that, um, obviously, looking at these issues um, for some time, that You know, there's a lot we can learn from history. It's like that Mark Twain saying, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. (laughs) So the first time, secular stagnation, this concept that we may be facing a stagnant uh, future, that was actually a term first coined in the 1930s when Alvin Hansen was worried about an aging population. So that was really the, the motivation, which is we've got some really deep-seated problems. And let's see if we can learn from some of the greatest thinkers in economics and, importantly, how they engaged with not identical but similar issues during their day and came through it, bringing us to um, this period of a really relative um, prosperity, despite our economic problems. So I certainly thought um, that was worth uh, looking at. Looking at their wisdom, looking at their failures, looking at their disagreements, but most importantly, seeing how economists can engage with the big questions of the day. Because that's the other thing the great economists shared in common. None of them were uh, literally sitting in a room writing a book. They were. Debating the big issues of the day, defeating mercantilism um, in the 19th century. This idea mm-hmm. of you need to have trade surpluses. No, David Ricardo said you need to improve the competitiveness, the efficiency of your own economy. Or uh, Joseph Schumpeter, best known for creative destruction, but actually his uh, probably his best known book is called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. In other words, really engaging in the Big issues of the day, which is probably what made them great.
0: Mm. So I, I want to sort of tick through uh, some of the economists and, and sort of what they would say about today's problems. Before I do, as you went through these dozen or so economists, who uh, like who do you do you feel like you you learned something about, or they surprised you? And as you're sort of you know writing this biography and thinking hard uh, about their about their thinking and how it. You know how it's relevant today. Th- th- was there did anybody surprise you that oh wow I, I you know I I'm thinking about with, I'm thinking about their thinking in a somewhat different way.
1: Mm. Um, and I probably uh, what surprised me the most was um, how hard they were on themselves. <laughs> Personally, so we think of Adam Smith, father of economics, Robert Solow, creator of the growth model, um, and actually, if you, because uh, I mean, as you mentioned, part of the book is biographies, which is which is just fascinating. I mean, the lives and motivations of um, you know the thinkers that have changed the world. And yet, Adam Smith, he was so disappointed he didn't produce more in his lifetime, and he wasn't happy with what he wrote later in his life, that he wanted everything he wrote burned after his death. Joseph Schumpeter, creative destruction creator, You know, really a transformative person. He gave himself fifty percent on his productivity every week. I mean, that's probably what surprised me the most. You'd be, you know, successful people are really hard on themselves.
0: Well, I would, I would say, if you're, uh, if if you don't know about the biographies of some of these. Economist. Just, I, I had just finished a. a, 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 a I, actually, I just reread a biography on, on Schumpeter, and this book sort of really reminded me that his life was a bit of a wild ride, uh, <laughs> yes. up, up, ups and downs, uh, to say the least. Uh, uh, well, let's dig let's, we'll, we'll, let's, in. You, you just mentioned uh, uh, Adam Smith. Uh, it's interesting that he uh, wrote The Wealth of Nations sort of just as the world was moving into the first stage in the Industrial Revolution, something that he didn't really recognize at the time, and yet his book, uh, extreme, extremely popular and relevant throughout the Industrial Revolution until today, and now we've, we're sort of moving into a, the post-Industrial Revolution to a digital economy. What did you find in Smith that you think is particularly applicable for today?
1: Really thinking about how governments can intervene and set up policies and institutions that are not distortionary, because the premise of his invisible um, hand—so that's very familiar to a lot of people—this idea that supply and demand um, will determine prices and quantities. Um, But Adam Smith wasn't actually a laissez-faire economist, as in you know what some might describe, uh, you know, which came after him. In fact, he was very focused on the ways in which government should provide some things. And then they need it, for instance, to tax. They needed to do it in a non-distortionary way. So in his words, um, and he actually effectuated this policy when he was um, the um, customs official for Scotland, who was a Scottish economist, he said you have to tax the tipple of the rich the same as the poor. <laughs> so in other words, in a non-distortionary um, fashion. So if you think about um today when there is um we do live in a post industrial predominantly services based economy. Um so that chapter is around should governments um, rebalance the economy? We hear a lot of that. Should governments be going in to promote some sectors uh, versus others. Right. And- there
0: seems to be a new a new interest. And yeah. the idea of industrial policy, exactly. and I'm not sure I'm not I, I'm not sure that I imagine partially it's because of the uh, the Great Recession Financial Crisis, yeah. led people mm-hmm. kind of think more generally about how we are growing economies. Are we growing them sustainable ways? And I would think also the sort of the sort of success of China, uh, you know, year after year, very high growth rates have at least maybe opened up some people's perceptions that, well, maybe maybe government can pick winners and losers and maybe it can choose which which sectors
1: Mm. Yeah, I think the um, industrial policy, were the uh, the new term you hear a lot now, industrial strategy. <laughs> right, right. Um, really, yeah. I think in the last ten years, I think for especially America and the UK, where services um, is very is very dominant. Um, there's almost uh, you know just a revisiting of this question because, for instance, Germany and France have bigger manufacturing sectors as a share of their economy. So. It's that I think that's where the policy focus certainly comes in. And interestingly, I think for Adam Smith, um, he would argue that if you wanted to do that, you should look at the policies and see whether or not it is promoting you know fair competition. So in other words, look at your tax policy, look at your um, sh- look at your strategy. And if it is e- an efficiently operating market, and we know lots of markets don't actually operate that efficiently. Um, Then should governments intervene? Um, Because there's lots of examples of where governments haven't done so well. And yet the countries that I mentioned, Germany and France, um, they have put a lot more support behind high end manufacturing. So if there are ways in which the tax system, for instance, um, isn't quite as efficient as it needs to be vis-a-vis different sectors, then you should look at that. But, Jim, I would just add that Adam Smith, as you said, um, he very much began to witness the industrial revolution. He had a real affinity for manufacturing. He described services, which is, of course, the the biggest part of um, all advanced economies, as um, full of buffoons and opera singers. <laughs> right? of
0: my, one, it's one of my favorite quotes, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think,
1: uh, but I wonder, I just wonder if he might change his mind if he could see that services uh, could be commoditized today. i
0: stick with Adam Smith for another just another moment. What would he think of the idea, and that you hear you certainly hear this a lot in the United States, people are concerned about manufacturing, that, well, maybe we need to create new, government should create manufacturing hubs or high technology hubs where there'll be areas of the country, and maybe we can give a certain tax structure or regulatory structure, and we can work with universities or government funded centers for manufacturing. So, th- this idea that if there's a, if, if what pol- policymakers view as a failure, oh, there's not enough manufacturing or not enough manufacturing in a particular sector, we can sort of inserted by government intervention. What what do you think of these sorts of ideas?
1: Yeah, so I write about advanced manufacturing, which is something that the U.S. has seen a a huge burst of, and it is in part due to um, government policy. Um, If you look at a state like Tennessee, it's got the biggest car factory in North America. Um, So I think, you know, and of course, that area has a history of having government support. um, You know, Oak Ridge National Lab, which is... um, a very well-known sort of high-tech R&D center. I think, you know, Adam Smith um, is not against government intervening. He's against government inter- intervening um, inefficiently or in a distortionary kind of way. So, for instance, we know that markets are not free. Uh, the playing field is not level. And I'm not just talking about within the U.S. because all of this is in a globalized world. So, would promoting um, advanced manufacturing, uh, which is um, actually pretty consistent with the United States' strengths in um, innovation, high-skilled labor, high-productivity workers, um, you know, is that uh, something that is, uh, you know, providing just a boost and then you can see the sector take off? And, of course, you know you judge it, um, too early to judge perhaps, so you'll judge it um, later on as to whether or not these policies disadvantage other sectors. But one thing I will add about advanced manufacturing. So it looks like uh, manufacturing has been reshored as in coming back to the United States over the past few years, and it's mostly in advanced manufacturing. But Adam Smith, I think, will certainly point out that um, that wasn't due to explicit government policy. That had to do with rising wages in places like China, the shale revolution, which reduced energy costs, um, high productivity, um, automated m- um, manufacturing. In other words, automation um, means that as factories come back, it doesn't mean that the jobs are be- Exactly. So, what you see is that manufacturing jobs in the US is still below the level of 1950, even though manufacturing output has picked up. So in my book, I relate uh, one example where I spoke to the um, CEO of uh, Stanley Black and Decker. He made his first power tool in the United States for decades. He said that wage costs, and the reason he did it was because wage costs, once you take into account productivity and unit labor costs, so things like energy and transport, it costs the same to produce a power tool in the United States than, than it does in China. And he gets the added boost of a made in america sign on his um on his box so i think um this issue yeah it is it is and finally i think the other thing to kind of stress is when we're talking about automation and obviously a lot of these big companies they're not you know advanced manufacturing means they invest a lot in R and D. so There's also a heavy component of services, right, and a lot of high-end manufacturing. So some companies, I'm thinking Rolls-Royce, for instance, you know it for their cars, but they make more money servicing their engines um, than actually selling the engines. So it's called the servicification of manufacturing. So once you take that into account, then actually isn't what um, the United States um, actually promoting is what it is, which is a... Highly productive highly technological services economy with high manufacturing
0: you were, you' were mentioning the sort of the the uh, the reshoring of jobs, which is a great lead in to get into David Ricardo. Uh, I think if you would listen to certainly in the United States uh, politics over the past few years, you would think that David Ricardo got it all wrong that, cur- that if you look at the current u s trade policy and least uh, the president's view of trade uh, it is a belief that uh, the last two hundred years of thinking about trade and free trade is wrong, and we got it all wrong, and the United States needs to go in a different uh, direction. So, what, what would Ricardo make of the current trade debate?
1: I think it's, that's this. It's fascinating. That's exactly um, what I uh, write about, which is do trade deficits matter? So, David Ricardo, the father of international trade, uh, by the way, he was um, sort of a disciple of Adam Smith. Um, the story is actually he made a lot of money as a stockbroker, betting the right way in the Battle of Waterloo, uh, ended up becoming bored, as you do, I guess, when you're wealthy. Did he keep the
0: money? Because a lot of these guys make money and they lose oh, yeah. it. And then That's the other never- thing throughout
1: the book, right? economists as investors. Hmm. Uh, well, Ricardo kept his money, um, quite unusually. Um, and he happened to pick up Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations um, when he was on vacation. And he taught himself economics and he wrote the model of comparative advantage, which basically argued that countries should make sure that they were specializing um, in what they're relatively less inefficient at. In other words, a country could be more productive than you in everything, but you'd still produce something. You would try to really tailor what you produce to what you were relatively better at. And that was more important than the mercantilist doctrine of the day, which is that countries should aim for trade surpluses, ideally finding gold and silver and bringing it back. And that's a real surplus. So he was instrumental in the repeal of the Corn Laws of 1846, which is a highly protectionist piece of agricultural legislation. And that paved the way um, to his model of uh, free trade um, and globalization and really leading into uh, the, the, uh, the kind of the world that we uh, see today, which is you know, very um, interconnected. So I think if you looked at Ricardo's model, I think he would certainly point out that if you want to get your trade position um, improved, so say, um, you know, if you look at parameters, like if your current account deficit is more than 3% of GDP, um, even the IMF will take a look at that. Then what you need to focus on isn't Um, just whether or not trade is free, as in his model presumes free trade, as in a level playing field. You also importantly have to look at the capabilities of your economy. Um, How productive are you? How efficient are you? Are you specializing in things that um, suit your comparative advantage? And if you can get the fundamentals of the domestic economy right, that goes a long way towards your trade position, which is a reflection of your domestic strengths and weaknesses. What, what, and so I think those two what, what,
0: things would be what you would focus on What would work if if uh, I mean you know one of the one of the probably the most well-known economic studies in recent years has been David Otter's work on uh, on China and trade and what they call the China trade uh, shock. the idea that uh, you know when open China uh, joined the World Trade Organization in two thousand, really there's a flood of sort of, you know, those sorts of um, you know, manufacturing ports States, in, did, in the United States and some regions in the u s did very, very badly and haven 't really bounced back so uh, if uh, if Ricardo was presented with the uh, the china, trade shock, china China trade shock paper by David Otter, what would he make of that well, well, How would he respond
1: I think he would certainly um, well, I think integrating China into the world economy is um, probably uh, something that um, well, this is why it's described as the uh, as a shock to the global system. Um, but I think probably on both those areas um, that I mentioned a moment ago, um, David Ricardo would focus on. So one is um, America is deindustrializing as um, all advanced economies um, are. So um, if you look at the um, the effect, of course, China has had an effect in terms of offshoring of jobs. Um, but um, the evidence points to technology um, having automation um, really having actually a bigger effect in terms of uh, deindustrialization, um, and we discussed how actually manufacturing is actually getting more sophisticated. Um, so the China um, you know issue um, is you know it's sort of China's moving itself beyond that, but certainly historically, and um, that was one issue. And I think the second thing he would point to is. Um, despite the fact we just described trade as free trade and free um, as free, trade isn't actually free. So trade is about opening up your markets. So China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, and that really accelerated its integration into the world economy. And there are areas in which China does have a comparative advantage. It's got one-fifth of the world's population. So in terms of low-end manufacturing, I think, um, you know, it's hard to argue that that isn't necessarily uh, free. Um, but obviously, in other areas, China's market is more closed. So, coming back to what this means for U.S. workers, so yes, China's integration was a shock, and um, having the world's most populous nation enter into especially global value chains—that's bound to affect, you know, uh, manufacturing in advanced economies. But the other thing that David Ricardo's model pointed out is there will be losers from trade. So the question again comes back to if there are those that um, you expect to be left behind because of comparative advantage, then has enough been done to help them transition into new work? And that's historically what's happened when you've had both technology and trade shocks. Governments haven't done enough. Um, They redistribute, as in they help some workers through transfers of funds. But as we all know, people who lose their jobs because of um, these sh- uh, these factors, these shocks, um, they want they want to be equipped for new jobs. And I think and, that's really what needs to be focused
0: uh, on. Uh, Adam, let me sort Instead of Ricardo Adam Smith being being presented with the China trade shock uh, paper, would it be sort of a similar response that he would that he would understand that not everybody, even even if the country as a whole is an aggregate is better off? Not every single person is going to be better off. And then mm-hmm. that's where government has a role.
1: Well, it's interesting you mentioned Adam Smith because he, um, so I mentioned um, on trade because Ricardo was his disciple, but Ricardo disagreed with Adam Smith on what drives trade. So Adam Smith believed in absolute advantage. So he believed that countries um, traded in terms of what they were absolutely better at. So I think um, given China's low cost advantage, um, in terms of China's advantage and lower manufacturing, I think certainly that's something that... um, yeah uh, Adam Smith would agree with Ricardo on. Um, but I think in terms of Adam Smith's focus on workers, so I think um, you know your you know your really good, subtle point here is that Adam Smith actually very much worried about the health of his workers, the well-being of manufacturing workers. He thought that doing repetitive tasks would make people quite um, you know quite stupid. Um, that was his concern. And so I think all of these economists, Um, They were not just concerned with efficiency per se, um, in different ways, not necessarily through their theories, but certainly in their writings, um, you do see that they do um, very much focus on on the individual. So Adam Smith's uh, book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, um, I think really goes into this area. And then, of course, his disciples, known as the neoclassical economists, so people like the Cambridge economist, um, Alfred Marshall, they created welfare state capitalism. So they changed the capitalist system from the Industrial Revolution. And by the 20th century, they created a welfare state, which is actually meant to redistribute and help those who are left behind. So it has, I think, evolved. But I think if we look at the present day, I don't necessarily think there's an answer, a good answer to you know what to do to help um, workers who have been uh, left behind. So, in the kind of welfare state days, capitalism days in the early twentieth century, there was a focus on the deserving poor, making sure that any policies didn't disincentivize work. Um, you know, but I, so that's still there. But I think if you look at um, the loser from globalization, I think is certainly an issue that I write about in another chapter as well in the epilogue. That you know, some more, some more policies need to be um, examined, otherwise it causes a <laughs> backlash.
0: Just as just as Adam Smith was sort of doing his work as, as just as we we're sort of moving into the Industrial Revolution, Karl Marx, that his work sort of in the middle of it. And sort mm. of one criticism of Marx is that he did not see sort of the just sort of the vast abundance that would be created by the Industrial Revolution, particularly in sort of the, the, the second half of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. But China, I mean. Marx certainly could have predicted that kind of developmental path for a country. But here you have a country which still is kind of capitalist in some areas, has grown immensely richer over the past four decades um, by adopting some capitalist methods and techniques, but yet also likes to still consider itself a communist country. What what, what, what does Marx make of the Chinese developmental model?
1: Yeah. At that chapter, Can China Grow Rich? Um, I essentially conclude that Karl Marx would find it difficult to recognize China today in many respects, because China's growth since 1979 um, is because it's injected market forces, so incentive-based policies, um, in order to really reform the communist um, centrally planned economy so politically it's still communist but economically the centrally planned economy that existed between 49 and 79 that has been um, significantly dismantled through injecting um, market forces and I think um, Karl Marx um, if you were to witness that I think I, I'm not sure he would he would recognize that but then again Karl Marx, Like many economists, if the facts don't fit his theory, he changes his theory. So (laughs) if Marx were to see China today, I wonder if he would come up with something else. So, The example I'm thinking of is um, Karl Marx's original theory is that capitalism would lead to um, an uprising revolution and that the trigger was a crisis. So he got very excited um, with Friedrich Engels. Um, about the Panic of 1873, and that was a U.S. Uh, financial crisis that spread around the world. It sounds familiar, huh? And um, that's when unemployment first appeared in the dictionary. And Karl Marx was convinced that was the crisis that was going to lead to revolution and lead to communism. And then when it didn't happen, and the that was known as the Great Depression in the 19th century, uh, the Long Depression, Um, When that didn't happen, he decided that what would cause a real communist revolution was inequality. So he was convinced that income inequality in particular would be what would trigger the revolution that would finally get countries to be communist. (laughs) By the way, he was very much disappointed in his own lifetime. And he never lived to see, obviously not China, and he didn't even live to see the creation of the Soviet Union, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. And so... um, He, uh, I think he would uh, he would yeah he would not recognize uh, the China of today. Um, And I don't you know he didn't see his ideas um, come to fruition really in any major economy uh, during his lifetime.
0: Uh, A a sort of reoccurring theme in the book is the idea of economic growth, both how to get economies to grow faster, how to make sure that growth sort of benefits people broadly. Um, And as we mentioned earlier, one of the uh, economists is uh, Joseph Schumpeter. Who, uh, again, known for creative destruction, sort of, you know, a hero, sort of entrepreneurial uh, capitalism, but somebody who didn't give a lot of policy ideas during during his um, uh, during his career. In fact, there's a there's a quote, and I only have this at the tip of my. Tongue, just because I I just recently reread a biography of him. As as people would ask him for policy ideas, and he'd say, "Do you, do you think I'm running a drugstore that I just hand out pills?" You know, policies like <laughs> pills. So, <laughs> I'm, so I'm just curious what you know. And we mentioned the idea of secular stagnation, um, the idea that you know economies are kind of stuck in this slow growth rut. So uh, Schumpeter, what, what 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 would Schumpeter say and and, and advocate for today? Tell policymakers to try to have faster, uh, faster growth.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. He'd be really, you wouldn't find him really offering policy advice because he was part of the Austrian school. He really viewed economics as tool space, analytical, um, and it was really meant for others to draw um, policy conclusions from it. In fact, that was one of the reasons why um, Schumpeter was never quite as influential as John Maynard Keynes, whose general theory, when it was published in 1936, essentially dominated the scene because Keynes was all about answers. (laughs) Um, How you you end the Great Depression, how you you restore full employment. And uh, Schumpeter was doing his detailed studies of innovative companies (laughs) um, and uh, he wasn't offering uh, policy solutions. Um, I think Schumpeter would probably look at um, today and say, Um, just like in his day, you've got superstar companies, but you also have, um, so long, and and I think this is certainly um, the case, if you have the the institutions that support innovation, then you see tons of competitor firms that will emerge. So that's the process of creative destruction. He never worried about monopolies or superstar firms. He said those are the ones who had funds to invest in R&D, and innovation is what generates growth, long ways of technological change. And when, um, so in his day, he was writing at the time of U.S. Steel, these huge uh, companies, um, the trustification of American industry. And he he noticed there were hundreds of startups um, competing with these big companies until eventually um, you had the destruction part a lot of firms go under and then the strong uh, remain. So I think he would probably view today's innovations um, in terms of startup costs in the digital space. It's very low compared to in his day, I was talking, you know, rail industry, steel industry. So he would probably see the kind of startups that populate the landscape and say, that's exactly what we ought to be promoting a more creative destruction would he be concerned
0: they- about the big tech company because there's now there's this sort of growing concern that we have about monopoly and uh, mm-hmm. uh particularly in technology that we have these you know massive companies that we people just can't imagine them ever not being sort of massive tremendously important companies uh, and even though you know google and you know apple and you know Micro even though they're spending a lot of money on, on r d there's still, in some quarters, the idea that you know they need to be regulated or broken up. so would would, would Schumpeter want to break up these big technology companies?
1: I think Joseph Schumpeter would um, probably not worry about uh, he wasn't worried um, about monopolies in his day, so long as the institutions promoted competition. So that's not to say the industries don't need to be regulated. But if it's competitive, then he would say, um, don't worry about monopoly power because a, an efficient market means that um, no monopolies will last forever. And he, he charted industries and companies that wrote, that um, had risen and had fallen in the United States. And also, um, he was Austrian, um, and German industries um, you know, in the continental Europe. So I think his view would be, so long as the market was competitive and I think any regulation um, would have to be would have to um, focus on that and in that chapter um, what drives innovation I you know I, I look at so we look at um, smartphones today they're everywhere right so you know 10 years ago Jim the biggest smartphone makers in the world were Nokia and uh, Blackberry produced by Research Emotion today it's Samsung and Huawei has just overtaken Apple and so in the span of a decade, um, that landscape has completely changed. The churn rate um, in terms of big companies on the S&P 500, their lifespans are now on average much shorter, suggesting there's actually more competition, uh, you know, in terms of um, because of, well, perhaps because of this, you know, very low cost of starting out. So I think... You know, something like three quarters of those in the S&P 500 won't be there in a couple of decades at the current churn rate. So I think he would point to all of that and say, yeah, it's properly regulated. Don't worry about it.
0: Uh, Some of the economists in the book, I think, just to the uh, average listeners to this podcast, very familiar. Uh, Keynes, uh, Milton Friedman, certainly Adam, Adam Smith. To listeners who don't know who Joan Robinson is, who's Joan Robinson and why is she in this book?
1: So Joan Robinson um, was a very influential um, economist, a great economist. Um, She made her name in the 1930s as a disciple of John Maynard Keynes. So um, she was rare in that women in those days weren't awarded, um, widely awarded economics degrees, even if they took the same coursework as men. But Robinson's um, uh, rise was really, um, you know, very, very quick. And her work has a lasting impact on one of the big issues of our time, which is why are wages so low? Why don't wages track uh, productivity in a number of countries? So Robinson wrote a textbook based based on Keynesianism that focused on the short run and imperfect competition. So her concept of monopsony, which is monopoly in labor markets, basically showed that workers don't get paid the value of their marginal output if um, the labor market isn't perfectly competitive. So you can see the relevance of her work um, today because um, that helps to explain the divergence between productivity and wages. And she also writes about things like disguised and hidden unemployment. So if you want a full-time job or you have a Part-time job, then your wages are going to be low, um, and you're counted as employed. But really, she said that was hidden unemployment. So the U6 measure of unemployment picks up obviously some of that, as well as discouraged workers and other things. So Robinson was hugely influential in this um, in this area, which I think it is um, still one of the biggest issues that we face, and was certainly a big issue in the 1930s.
0: Um, just to sort of a uh, wrap up. I sort of start out by asking sort of what surprised you and there's sort of this, and there's also sort of this uh, general skepticism, again, I think partially because of the financial crisis about the expertise of these uh, economists. So you've had an opportunity, you've, you know, been here, you've sort of watched what's gone on, the global economies uh, since the great financial crisis, but you've also had the opportunity to sort of step back and take a, a, a renewed look at sort of the great economists of the, uh, of the past. So- has that process sort of changed your thinking uh, about anything or given you new ideas about what policymakers should or should not be uh, doing going forward?
1: Um, I probably two things. I think the, uh, the first thing is economists have always disagreed. <laughs> So um, uh, it's a, it is a it is a question of looking at competing schools of thought. So we've discussed Austrian economists versus neoclassical economists. Um, one of the things that uh, one of the big rivalries that I write about is John Maynard Keynes versus Friedrich Hayek. Um, there is a rap battle on YouTube, which has over six million views. So it's kind of like Hamilton, where they wrap out um, the views of Keynes versus Hayek over the causes of the Great Depression. And it was so popular, they made a sequel um, over the causes of the Great Recession. So I think the first thing to, to take away is economists will disagree. And that's a good thing for policymakers, because you can take their analysis um, and the evidence that they use. And you can use that to, to make a judgment. Economics is an analytical tool and it helps you make a more informed judgment. And I think the second thing that um, I took away is that the great economists, um, I think, um, were great because they embraced the big questions of the day, even if the answers weren't tidy, um, even if, um, I mentioned Joseph Schumpeter, we know him as creative destruction, his theories around that. Um, but probably his best-known book is called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And ideas, the ideas of economists, the great economists, um, have transformed um, entire societies. Um, So I mentioned um, globalization taking hold um, in the latter part of the 19th century, the creation of the welfare state in the 20th century, the fall of the Berlin Wall in the late 1980s. And I think we're now at a point in the 21st century, where we also have to look again at um, economic models and theories um, and engage with the big questions, um, even if they don't fit fit, uh, neatly into one set of uh, models or one set of theories. Um, It is about thinking about how our society should be uh, constituted and how um, to improve prosperity. Um, for all of us. So I really admired um, these great thinkers. Um, And as we discussed before, I was really struck by how they just, you know, many of them were really hard on themselves. Um, Yeah. And the final thing I think we briefly touched on is, um, most of the economists who invested lost their fortunes, so I just wouldn't look to them for investment advice. <laughs> but in terms of analysis, yes.
0: <laughs> My guest today has been Linda Yu, author of "What Would the Great Economists Do." Professor Yu, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Jim. It's been a pleasure.